Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Remain standing for just a little bit. I'm going to read for you my sermon uh, text here. The name of my sermon today is called Sing or How Shall We Sing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land? My text is from Psalm 137. I'll read the first few verses, but as has been our habit as we're working our way through the Psalter, we will preach the whole psalm today. Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1, says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they are they that carried us away captive, required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us myrrh, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we will contemplate this very question today. How shall we indeed sing your song in a strange land, the strange land in which we live right now? We pray, Lord, that as we delve into your word and open it up, Lord, that you would illuminate it to us, that you would speak to us right here where we are. Israel was in a much different place. You had words for them then, and they had emotions that came from the great and deep regret that they experienced for their sins. May we indeed find that same spirit within us, Lord, as we long to sing your song, even in a strange land. In Christ's name we pray, all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. And I hope what I'm going to share with you next is not out of place. I've been working on my book. And uh, part of my book um, seemed to fit very well with this psalm. And so I thought I would share a little bit of my book with you. I'm writing about the life of Dr. Eric Jalamar East, the first medical missionary among the headhunters in the jungles of the Chin State, Burma. He kept a long book detailing the many strange twists and turns the story of his life made through years, and I'm going to share some of that with you today. Jalamar wrote this. He said, my father was a large man, and he was powerfully built. And I noticed that all the men tipped their hats to him, and the women curtsied. We all walked on our tiptoes when he was around, and no one dared disobey him, as his words were the law. He was the sheriff of the land. And besides, he always carried about with him a cane, a stout one that he used on me once when I objected to running an urgent errand for him some 10 miles away. He did not hit me very hard, but it made me run faster. And I had to run through some forest about which I had heard some weird and Scary stories. This is a 10-year-old Jalamar 
sent on a 10 mile errand in the darkness. And he's writing about it because it affected him throughout his life. And oh, how my heart jumped as I returned through the forest late in the hour as the hoodow almost finished me and my imagination began running wild. A man had hung himself in that forest some generations before I came there. And everyone said that his ghost was still haunting the people. And I could almost see him hanging on every branch of the tree in the forest. I would see him shrouded in a white sheet dashing after me as I ran along. And I reached home late that night. None the worse for my long run. But I still have a horror for the weird ghost stories that they told so long ago. In my early years, superstition was rank in the native land, and I could write a book on that subject. During the long winter evenings, the older people would tell us the most awe-inspiring tales that had come down from long ago. It had a very uh, unpleasant effect upon me. And when I would walk in the darkness, I would expect to see a troll or a ghost or some unearthly thing spring from every bush or dark place and scare the life out of me. To drive the devils and the ghosts and the trolls away, I would sing to the top of my voice so that people even a mile away could hear me. And I was sure to have a good stick in my hands so that I could put up a good fight if it came to that. In the meantime, I watched every juniper bush along my pathway in order to be fully prepared if some monster would lay in wait to spring upon me. Those were terrible days to me, but the nights were the worst. The people thought that I was a brave boy, but it was the fright that made me sing. You see, the habit of singing away his fears in the darkness began when he was just a boy. Those formative years, but it became transformed into something inspiring and powerful and even light-giving. For just like many of King David's psalms, his songs began in the nighttime of fear and complaint, but by their end, they crescendoed in faith and noonday confidence. John Mahler's life would be an answer to the question the Israelites offered here in Psalm 137, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? From Bopi Village, Saturday, February the 27th, 1909, John Mar wrote these words. We're now 15 miles from Dakarai. I'm not much afraid of anything, but up here in the country, it swarms with panthers and leopards and tigers. And my pony, Nancy, is beginning to take notice of these tracks as we see these dreadful tracks everywhere we go. Today, she just refused to go, and I had to get off of the pony and begin to lead the way. She's perfectly willing to follow me if she sees that I am leading. At this time, in the most remote of places, there is no doubt that Jalamar began to sing. As Saul summoned David to sing the evil spirits away from him, this man of God began the same habit as a young lad in Sweden. Remember how I told you a few moments ago that he used to sing as loud as he could so that he could be heard a mile away. Remember how he said that people thought he was brave, but it was really fright that made him sing. Jalamar was brave, but in his chest of this tower of a man, there still beat 
the heart of a babe. And it was at these times we know that he perfected God's praise. The next day in Champy Village, March the 2nd, 1909, Jalamar wrote these words. We plan to go on to Mavon Village in Manipur border. The path to that village was a few miles from our camp, but I missed the path. And I wandered over the mountains and I forded some streams looking for some human abode. At times I rode and then again I led my pony. For seven hours the pony and I trudged along and we made 20 miles in that time. Fortunately, I had two plantains in my pocket before we left camp this morning and the pony and I divided them between us. She had water from the stream and I had coca in my canteen. Near one stream, tracks of the tigers and the panthers were so many that the pony became restless. And as we could find no sound of tracks of men, we sought to increase our speed along our way. You see, many people who live in Myanmar to this day still speak of the terrible fear of tigers. Pastor Ning tells the story of how when he and his little sister or little brother were in the woods and they saw one, that they were afraid even to breathe. And so he held his brother or sister until they passed out. They were afraid if even the smell of your breath got out of your mouth that the tiger would smell it and would eat you. Jalamar's song that day may have started out slow and quiet as a whisper as he walked along the ever-narrowing path, eyeing the tracks of the carnivorous cats who might be behind every bush seeking to devour him. He may have sung a song like, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, probably quiet and almost whispering as he started out his song whatever my life could you imagine him as he's walking and he's wondering if he's about to be pounced upon at any time by a tiger thou hast taught me to say even so it is well with my soul by this point in his song his chest might have filled like the mighty blacksmith bellows with the spirit of courage, singing out loud enough to move the banana leaves his machete hadn't cut from his path. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. I'm kind of imagining that something like this happened in... Those times, Jalamar would certainly have known this very song and the stirring story behind it. We know how Horatio Spafford survived the great Chicago fire. His song and story was widely sung in churches everywhere. Perhaps even he sung it to calm his nerves aboard all or the many ships that carried him across the Atlantic where Spafford had written these words, words of hope at a time when most men would have despaired. The story of the song is certainly tied to the sea. If you remember, Spafford's wife and four daughters had gone ahead to England on the SS Ville du Havre as the family planned to assist Dwight Moody in some of his upcoming evangelistic meetings there. But there was a mid-Atlantic crash with a ship in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning and 
The Vilduhar quickly sank beneath the waves. Spafford's wife, Anna, survived, but all four of his daughters drowned. As Spafford boarded a steamer hasting to his wife's side across the Atlantic, the captain of the ship paused along their journey and pointed out the place in the sea near where the grieving father's daughters were lost. And it was at that time, as he considered his profound loss, the words of the song, It is well with my soul, were written down. And for many years, ship captains told their story to their crews and their passengers as they crossed over the sea where the girls were lost. And today, we join the psalmist in asking the question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How shall we sing? Indeed, he Spafford sang about it as he was on a ship over where he lost his daughters. Jalamar sang in the jungles of Burma while he didn't know if he was going to be eaten by a tiger and we here ourselves are living in quite a strange land of our very own. We live in a strange land of constant suffering and of loss, a strange land of darkness where the good news of the light is not good news for everyone, a strange land that God will one day judge. And so today we join the psalmist in asking, how shall we sing the Lord's song? Psalm 137 it has no inspired heading. We don't know who wrote it. But the content of it is so very, very clear to us, explaining to us under what circumstances it was written. It will become painfully plain. I say painfully because it is uh, difficult not to feel this pain with them as we harmonize with them on their journey of suffering. This is what God's word says that is our lot as Christians. Yes, we get the joy that we experience with our brothers and sisters joy. But what do we also have? We suffer with them when they suffer. I really believe that a church uh, oftentimes that becomes more entertainment driven or more fast food uh, drive through uh, organized more like a business misses out on truly suffering with people when they suffer and joying with them when they joy. We need to long for the closeness that comes inside of a family of believers within the church. Amen? Here in Psalm 137, there is very deep longing. There is desperate grief and there is a direct look at regret for the sins of a people. The very willow trees around them weep with them and we may weep with them as well. Verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. This is almost like a sermon in itself. There's three things. They sat down, they wept, and they remembered. I don't, I'm not a three point and a poem kind of a guy, but if we were going to do a whole sermon on this verse, I would make these my three points. It may, the, this may be the most heartbreaking line of poetry in Israel's history. The one who wrote these words witnessed the great fall of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem and her holy temple on Mount Zion by Nebuchadnezzar's overwhelming flood of soldiers and chariots. 
This was God's promised judgment on the people when they would not repent of their many idolatrous sins. And we know that Isaiah and Jeremiah, Obadiah and the other prophets had repeatedly called on the people of God to turn from their wicked ways. Everybody say, but they would not. Do you know God loves us enough to not allow us to live in our sins? The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. And the Bible tells us that if you believe that you're going to escape the discipline of God because you are a believer, you are wrong. In fact, we should expect it. In fact, if you are not disciplined of God, then you are not his children. Now, I will tell you, honestly, as I read about this discipline, I think what father could even comprehend this severe of the discipline? Well, our heavenly father in whom there is no darkness at all. Amen. What he did to Israel and what he allowed to happen is so horrendous and so heinous that I almost it's unspeakable, really. You heard about it from 2 Kings chapter 25. They burned Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They uh, took and blinded the king. They, they took all of Israel captive and took them into a strange land. And now part of this great host of them taken captive and made slaves in Babylon. They sat. Everybody said, said they sat. Everybody say they wept. They wept the grief of a loss none of us dare even comprehend. It would break our hearts as it did theirs that day. They had not lost four daughters as Spafford had. They had not lost a wife. They had not lost a son or even a beloved grandparent. They had lost a nation, their way of life, their temple, their communion with God, as well as countless numbers of loved ones who were killed or held captive, ravished by the invaders and taken where they could not even imagine where they were. Now in the kingdom of Babylon, more than 500 miles across an unforgiving desert, situated in the fertile valley between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Babylon, they sat down. And yea, they wept. And they wept when they remembered Zion. I can almost see them wandering around in a daze in Babylon, not knowing what to do. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere even to return to, even if they had escaped. In these words, we see a surrender that often comes to us at the end of our hope to save ourselves from the pain that has overwhelmed us. It is what we do. We wander around sometimes in our own sin until we finally come to the place where we just go... We sit down. Can you sort of picture this? Israel is being personified. And here they are. They're captive. They're frantic. They don't know what to do. But eventually, guess what? Actually, they just go. It says, we there by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down. It says, yay. We wept. Can you picture this? And then they remembered. And remember, isn't this kind of like a human pattern that we we go through? We we sit down because sometimes we gotta just stop. Sometimes we gotta just say, you know what? This what I just been through has been really horrible. It's been 
terrible. I, I don't know what to do, but Lord, I'm just sin. There's nowhere to go. Like they couldn't even go back. There, there wasn't any Jerusalem for them to go live in. There wasn't any temple for them to go worship in. There, there wasn't any great Passover feast for them to miss. It was all gone. And so they didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what would, but, but you know what they did? They finally just came to the end of their selves. And I'm telling you, that's what true repentance is. It's when you come to the end of you. The Bible says when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ came for us. And so we see pictured here in this very, very sad picture of Israel, but it could also be a picture of us. A picture of us who when God speaks to us and says, you know, you can't continue in sin. You can't live in an ungodly way. You can't continue to break my law and not expect me to do anything about it. God loves us and he will not allow us to live in sin. God will not allow you to live in sin either. He loves you. God isn't wanting to destroy you and obliterate you and wipe your name off the face of the earth as he will some people, but he will certainly discipline you. And if God had meted out this kind of discipline to us, to me, I don't really know what we could do but sit down and weep and remember. You see, we eventually do sit down because we can't always stand and we weep because we need to mourn. And they remembered because it's how we truly realize our loss. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. In verse 2 it says, We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. The Israelites were known for their singing. They were a singing, worshiping, dancing people. They were known for their joyful songs. God's people has always been known for their praising and their joy. And everybody knew it. The whole world knew it. They were a singing city set on a hill that could be heard and not hid. And their praise was beautiful to God. And their harmonies went up before him as a sweet smelling smoke. In his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand there are pleasures evermore. Joy is a fruit of the spirit that grows in the fertile valleys where the spirit lives. If joy doesn't live where God's people are, then God must not be there. We should be joyful people. We should be able to say, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We should picture Israel, uh, arms locked around singing and worshiping and, 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 and pulsing to the praise of God. It is what they did. The people of the world would watch them and they would say, look at them. Look at them. When they came across the Red Sea, what happened? Miriam grabbed a timbrel and it said she began to take the tambourine, you know, or whatever. And she began to dance and she began to sing. Israel had a lot to be joyful about. Right? 
Well, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Well, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Boom. That's what they were. Could you imagine how horrible it was for them to be in a place with no song? It's amazing to me that they still had their hearts. This is telling of how much a part of them their praise was. I imagine them walking to the river with their harps in their hands. No song in their hearts or mouths and realizing that they needed to hang them in silence upon the trees. The branches of these trees themselves, the willows that grow close to the water, spoke sorrow, bending down like running tears, tracing faces full of loss, and the water of the river seems to be the bed of tears. To add to their grief, their captors taunted them callously. And when our enemies and the enemies of God do this, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Folks, we live in a world where our faith in God is mocked. How could it be that a person comes into a Christian school and kills the teachers and the students and what they get out of it as well? They think they had it coming. You know, they weren't really nice to people. What's going on in our country today? Little church gets together and tries to love people, tries to have a school. I'm sure they're not perfect, but hey, you know what? If they weren't mean to that person, they probably wouldn't have come and killed everybody there. Is that really what we're living in, folks? Verse 3, For they that carried us captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us myrrh, saying, Sing unto us the songs of Zion. I know this is a painful psalm, but it's, we're going through every one of the psalms. When we get to the Hallelujah songs, we can run around the building. You guys want to run them? Those that carried them away, those that wasted them or destroyed their cities with fire required that they try. Could you sing me one of them happy songs? Sing a song of myrrh, of joy. You know what Proverbs 25 says? Like one who takes a blanket off of someone in the cold weather. Like a reactive or useless mixture of vinegar on soda is the thoughtlessly singing of a joyful song to a man with a heavy heart. It's painful. Sing, Ash, come on. Sing a song of joy, honey. And you're just... Dying. These people were vile. There's a picture that's explaining to us the depravity of man. Man is dark. And when people are down, you know what the world does when you're down? You know what they do? When you're down, what do they do? When you're down, they kick you. When you fall and when you falter and when things are going bad, you know what they do? Oh, you know what? We always believe Rachel was that kind of a person. Why is it that we're like this? Yeah, you know, I, I always had some concerns about that, Ashley, you know. <sighs> I mean, I, I could see this coming a mile away. She was even worse than you know. 
the wicked like to get in on the action. They asked themselves in verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They, they were asking the Babylonians. I think they were asking themselves. And today I'm asking us to ask ourselves this question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How indeed with the loss, the taunting, and with a life that we live that seems so far from heaven. Verse 5, if I forget the O Jerusalem at my right hand, forget her cunning Here in verse 5, the psalmist turns from his captors and he looks up to Jerusalem, gone but not forgotten, still alive in God's promises. He had said that he would establish forever. And they wondered if they had already even lost that promise from God. They didn't know if they had lost God himself at this time. But he begins to sing that he would remember the goodness of God in the land of the living back in the days when things were wonderful. The psalmist wants to remember Jerusalem, the city of God, and never forget it. He wants to forget the skill of battle in his hand or the mastery of his hand upon his heart, but he doesn't want to forget Zion. You know, one of the things when someone loses someone they love, they, they're worried they're going to forget them. They, they don't want to forget that face. They don't want to forget the feel of their hand. They don't want to forget the, the smell This person is saying, I don't want to forget God and his people and Israel and what God has done. You know, we can become so distracted in life and move on really from things we shouldn't move on from. We should always remember and understand that God is doing something in the world that will not be undone. It cannot be undone. That God has established a kingdom that cannot fail, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. And there may be days when she seems like she is dead, but I will tell you what, we know the resurrection and the life. Amen. We may live in some very hard and scary and difficult days. I know that people everywhere are predicting it and they're, you know, saving up food for this time. And maybe, maybe they will be right. I don't know, but I will tell you what we will set and we will weep and we will remember about the good that we had. I guarantee you we will if we live in those days and we'll be thankful for things right now that we take for granted. So how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, folks? Why do we forget? Because we what? We don't remember. We are not citizens of this world. We are strangers, foreigners. We cannot love this world, but we can love the one who God is making. God is making a world, a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem can never be burned. It can never be taken from it. We can never be taken from it either. And it is for this city that we search as Abraham did. Verse six, if I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. More important than knowing how to speak or to sing is the remembrance of these things eternal. The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is how we sing in a strange land by not laying up for ourselves treasures where moth can rust, can corrupt, where thieves can break in and steal. But we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. As we come to verse 7 and 8, the, the last couple verses here, they're very difficult. And they're difficult because 
They don't sound like something we would want our children to say. Doesn't sound like something we actually would even want to say, but it says it in the psalm here, and we're going to have to look at it briefly. Well, maybe not so briefly. The psalmist prays here in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. God was being called upon by Israel to remember to deal with these people called the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Remember, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, right? They had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Well, the sons of and the descendants, Sister Joy, of Esau were the Edomites. And God had sent them into Canaan to get rid of the Amalekites and the Philistines and all these bad guys, right? But guess who they weren't supposed to be ripping out? They weren't supposed to deal with the Edomites. God said, I will deal with the Edomites. Well, when it came time for the Babylonians to come and to destroy Jerusalem as they did, guess who got in on the action? The Edomites. And the Edomites came in. And folks, I'm going to tell you right now, one of the most destructive and horrible forces in the world today is the church itself. It it is those people within the church that are not part of Christ at all. Where else would they want to be? What did Paul say? Hey, let me tell you what's going to happen. Uh, Wolves will come into the church. They will not spare the flock. They will do some horrible things. Paul cried and prayed. He said, you need to understand this is serious business. Take heed to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. Because these ravening wolves will come in and they will do great damage in It's what happened. The Edomites came in and they plundered Israel and they did ungodly things. They were the tares that grow up among the wheat. The ones that God says is not up to us to pull out. God pulls them out though. And not only does God pull them out, but he deals with them. And so they're asking God, can you, Lord, can you deal with the Edomites? They came in and they said, raise it, raise it. Take the city and burn it to the ground. They were cheering on our enemies. Lord, deal with these Edomites. Folks, I'm going to tell you right now, the church is uh, oftentimes, it seems to eat its own because there are so many in the church that are not in Christ at all. Remember what we heard just a little bit ago? All of Abraham's descendants are not Israel, right? Obadiah chapter 1. Here's what God had already said. This happened years before this psalm was written. Obadiah chapter 1. On the day that you stood aside, on the day that strangers carried off the wealth of Jerusalem, foreigners entered in these gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You, Edom, you were like one of them, but you should not have gloated over your brother in that day of his misfortune. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their ruin. You should not have boasted on the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. You should not have joined in the gloating over Judah's disaster on the day of his calamity. You should not have looted his goods on the day of his calamity. You should not have stood at the crossing to cut off the fugitives who were trying to get away. You should not have handed over his survivors on the day of distress. And God said he was going to deal, Sister Joy, he's going to deal with these Edomites. 
I won't read it all, but it's in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well. He says, when my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, lo, it will descend upon Edom, upon the people I have doomed in judgment. The Lord has a sword and it is saturated with the blood and it is gorged with the fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. The land shall be soaked with blood and their soil will be made rich with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of the vindication by Zion's cause. Like, I don't know, that sounds pretty rough. Folks, do you know God is going to eradicate sin from this earth? Do you know there was a day that came when God sent a flood and it killed every living thing except what was in the ark. And I'm telling you, there's a reason why. Sin is deplorable and it is disgusting. It is reprehensible. It is filthy. It is nasty. Anybody that knows that when sin gets in between you and someone you love, how divisive and powerful and nasty it is, it separates us from God. It destroys marriages. It brings sickness. And you know what? God is not just going to be content with, oh, you know, every, I'm just going to just say it's okay. It's all right. No big deal. That's not what's going to happen. Jeremiah 49, concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord, I will bring calamity to Esau when the time I will punish him. I will make you the least among the nations, despised of humankind. The terror of you should inspire the pride of your heart that you were deceived. Edom shall become the object of horror. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors were overthrown, says the Lord, no one shall even live there, neither anyone settle. You know, you guys ever seen Petra? That's what it's talking about. Petra is where the Edomites lived. When I see that, I'm like, why doesn't somebody live here? This is awesome. This is incredible. This is great rock city. Well, no one's going to live there. Because God's wiping the memory of them off the face of the earth. O daughter of Babylon, verse 8, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Once again, this is a prayer for judgment to come. God uses others to discipline his people. He ultimately will judge the ones he does discipline on us with. Romans 9 deals with that extensively. We heard about it, right? Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, right? What if God, willing to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us. Everybody say, even us. Amen. Folks, you know, you know how we can sing in a strange land? Because judgment is coming on the enemies of God. We oftentimes will watch a documentary about Nazi Germany. And who is not praying to God that the people that fired up the concentration camps, the people that starve people. And who, who's not hoping that hell will be prepared for people who do that kind of thing? I certainly am. 
God is not going, you know, well, you know, Stalin killed 7 million people or whatever they did in these places and people torture and burn and ruin people's lives and molest them and do unspeakable things to them. They traffic them and you go, well, you know, uh, people make mistakes. No, no, no. God will wipe this from the face of the earth. He will destroy them. He will destroy their children's children. He will destroy all of that. And you go, well, that's really, really rough. Listen to the verse. Listen to the last verse. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes their little ones against the stones. Now, that's really, really rough imagery. And I know we have little children in here. But literally, he is saying that the little ones of the heathen, they need to have their heads. Now, we got little, we got little Daniel. He got his head uh, dashed, right? And he's got, he got his ear hurt, right? That's terrible. We, like the, the very thought of it, everyone's gathered around. Oh, 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 little buddy, we want him to be okay. But the deal is, is they're wanting us to rejoice that someone's head gets dashed and smashed and killed. What is he talking about? This is raw, real emotion about the desire that we have because we hate what God hates. God hates uh, this vileness that is going on. That they're taking children and they're trying to convince them that they're not even the sex that they were born. That they're giving them surgeries that can't be undone. That they're blocking their hormones with drugs so that they don't develop into what God has made them to do. Folks, we're living in a very wicked world. They're doing it for money. They're doing it because it's the spirit or the zeitgeist of the age. Who would have ever believed we would live in a day and age where people would, be, would, would, would accuse you of violence for trying to stop them for cutting the breasts off of a little girl? I know this is very graphic, but what I'm trying to tell you is we should have a hatred for this. We should be praying, God, stop these wicked men. Lord, stop this ungodliness. Lord, these children are being harmed and scarred and for generations. Only God knows what will happen in the next. These people are deceiving. These little children are, are going along with it. They're sitting in there. They're in, 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 you know, getting story hour from drag queens that are sexualizing them at five and six years old. And I know I don't normally get what they call political. But folks, this is not political. This is ungodly. It's horrible. It's horrendous. And when we live in a world like that, we should say, even so, Lord Jesus, not just come quickly and take me away, but come quickly and destroy this vileness from the earth. Remove this plague. We don't hate homosexuals or people that are confused and they don't know what they are. We will love those people. We will be kind to those people. We will pray that God will save those people, but we cannot take part in the ungodly things they do to disform and disfigure and scar children. Amen? We love the women who come to have an abortion. We don't yell and scream at them and call them names and, and threaten them and act them like they're psychos. We, we, we plead with them, please don't hurt your baby. We tell them, hey, this is real life. We, bring, we show them our children and remind them that what they're carrying is life that they don't have the right to take away. Folks, we should be horrified by what the world is doing and pray for its 
complete annihilation and destruction. That is what is going on here at the last of Psalm 137. They had lived. Here they had their city burned and everything taken and the Edomites were coming in and stealing. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine you're, you're, you're being taken captive? They're stealing the stuff. You know, your, your children are being abducted. They're slaughtering, you know, they're, you know, they're killing our dogs in our front yard and they're, they're, they're whatever. And then your neighbors come in and go, oh, you know, I kind of like this tea set here. This is going to be nice on my table, sweetie pies. Like, right? You're like, oh, Lord, scorch the earth with these people. And I'm telling you, the ungodly, this is what sin is. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Sin is ugly. The enemy comes but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And folks, I think that we do what we, God has commanded us not to do. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the love, if the love of the world is in you, then the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But those things will not endure forever. In fact, those things will burn. The Bible says that the earth will burn with a fervent heat and those things of wood, hay, and stubble will burn. And those things that God has uh, going to purify the world from, he will not do it with water. Water worked in the days of Noah, but it is fire that will be the purifying tool of God in the day of God's great vengeance. I know this is rough. I know I've been preaching for a while. I better sum it up. Psalm 137. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land by hating what God hates, by remembering what is beautiful and lovely, by remembering who we are, by remembering that, that oftentimes the things that happen to us happen because we are complacent and we don't repent and we become idolatrous and we follow after the world and we love the world. How should we sing? We shall sing a song that regrets our sin. We shall sing a song that joys in the heart of God and in the pleasure that he provides us and that hopes and prays for his judgment to come, for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Won't that be a great day? Won't it be a great day when there's no hurting and violence and, and death and prejudice and disease and, and greed? It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great day. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? By knowing the singer, knowing the song, right? For the Lord himself, the Bible said, shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the mighty archangel. God is going to do with, he's going to ride, the Bible says, and we will ride behind him, that he will come, he will tread out the, the winepress of the wrath of God. He is, it says, out of his mouth will come a two-edged sword, right? On his vesture, it will be righteousness. Folks, that's the army we want to be in. That is exactly what we should be hoping and praying for. No, we're not building a militia in the side yard. And, and, and no, we're not wanting to like, you know, try to force everyone to act like they got some sense. It's the Holy Ghost that changes hearts of men. Not force. Charlemagne, with all his, you know, whatever he did, putting people to the sword and telling them to follow Christ, did not change the world. It is Christ alone who can change the heart of a sinner. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for giving us a song. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that we would, as we 
contemplate the words of Psalm 137, we would ask ourselves if we are singing your song in a strange land or have we begun to sing with them? Lord, I pray that we would not love this world. I pray that we would not be building our kingdom in this world, but that your kingdom would come, that kingdom of love and light, of kindness and beauty. Let it come. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us.